Well, good morning. Uh, Pastor Gary and his wife, Sherry, they're out of town this morning visiting family in Alaska. Um, so we're taking a break from our series in Philippians, and we're going to take a look at the story of redemption. So we're going to do this by looking at redemption in God's sovereignty, in God's grace, and then in God's glory. And redemption can be described as God paying the ransom in full to free us from the death we deserve as sinners. So this morning is going to be slightly different than normal, um, and it's mainly on how the sermon's going to be presented. So I'll be speaking on God's sovereignty, Adam Sandwick will be speaking on God's grace, and Tara Leonard will be sharing on God's glory. So for those that may not know me, my name's Doug Ratzliff. I'm one of the elders here at Enid Mennonite Brethren Church, along with Larry Fry, Adam Sandwick, and Terrell Unruh. And when I was younger, I remember hearing a slogan that was used by a car rental company, Avis. Some of y'all may remember it as well, but the slogan was, we try harder. I don't know if anyone else remembers that, but that slogan was actually their corporate motto for 50 years, from 1962 to 2012. I'm assuming it was effective as a, from a corporate perspective. It obviously worked to some degree. I, I remembered it. We try harder. I think there was a period in my life where that could have been my slogan. I would have been proud of it, too. Right? It's American way. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Get it done. I think we've all been there at one time or another. And I think there are still times in my life where I still probably fall into that type of thinking. So however as effective as that motto is, we try harder. As effective as that is from a corporate perspective, it can be wrong thinking for an individual. So the problem with this type of thinking of only trying harder is that it puts all the focus on ourselves and what we can do with the objective being personal happiness. So when the focus becomes ourselves, we begin to look at Scripture as a sort of self-help book, uh, pulling out Scripture to meet our needs, to meet a, moment, to meet a need at that, at that moment, hoping a verse will inspire change. Behaviors and attitudes, they may change for a while, but lasting change rarely happens when we use Scripture topically like this. And we miss the real story when we do this, the story of redemption, with the focus being Jesus Christ. So whenever we seek to find the solution to our problems outside the story of redemption, we will be disappointed. So redemption is Christ's sacrifice on the cross as an exchange to free us from our bondage to sin. So if you're following along with your sermon notes, which are provided in the bulletin, there's a couple of blanks listed at the top of those sermon notes. I'll just repeat that. So redemption is Christ's sacrifice on the cross as an exchange to free us from our bondage to sin. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So the exchange I mentioned is the substitution of Christ in our place. In our sin, we deserve to be on the cross, but Christ died for, our, for, Christ died for us. So thinking in this context, the story of redemption can be seen in three main doctrines. God's sovereignty, God's grace, and God's glory. So how do we see the story of redemption in God's sovereignty? Christ's sacrifice on the cross was part of God's perfect plan to deal with the sin and brokenness of the human heart. 
And if by faith we have accepted the gift of salvation that was made available through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, then we can claim the promise described in Romans 8.28. So that verse reads, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we can rest in this truth. First off, God has a plan. And number two, in that plan, God will work all things for our good, for those that are called children of God. And so when I say children of God, what I mean is that we are all created by God in his image, but only those who love God and have demonstrated this by putting their faith in Christ have been adopted into God's family and are therefore children of God. Romans 8.29 goes on to say and, and describes the good that is spoken of in Romans 8.28 as our being made like Christ as we grow in our Christ-likeness. So think for a moment of the significance of the sovereignty of God. Kings used to be called sovereign because they were the undisputed ruler over all their kingdom. God is the king of kings, and he rules over all things at all times, including ruling over every aspect of my life and your life. So there's nothing outside of his sovereign control. So this should remove all worry, all doubt, all fear, and all uncertainties. Romans 8.28 is not saying we will be successful by worldly measures in everything we do, or that we will have a good life, or even that we won't have pain and sadness. It is, however, a promise that God is in control, and he is working to bring about his will for our good, by his grace and for his glory. Our circumstances do not define God's sovereign goodness, and this world is not the end goal. So God's sovereignty calls us to the likeness of Christ. As we begin to see things from a biblical perspective, we begin to lose the self-centered kingdom, and our hope is no longer in ourselves as sinners, or in our own decision-making, or in our abilities, but our hope is in God who is in control of all things. As has been my tendency at times in the past to do just as the Avis slogan says, to try harder, we need to continue to move away from this self-kingdom thinking and pursue the kingdom of God. So we just finished a three-month series during one of the Sunday school classes on marriage. There was a similar line of thought discussed during one of those lessons in that Sunday school class. And that line of thought is basically, if you were to worship God as sovereign, how would that change your marriage? So think about that for a moment. In fact, on the back of your uh, sermon notes, there are some questions and thoughts provided on, that are provided that can be used as a life group study discussion or maybe just for your individual study throughout the week. And this might be one that you just want to add to that. So if you were to worship God as sovereign, how would that change your marriage? Or rephrase it if you like. If you were to worship God as sovereign... How would that change your situation at work? Or if you were to worship God as sovereign, how would that change who you view God is? Or just, if you were to worship God as sovereign, how would that change your blank? So fill in your own blank here. You see where I'm going with this. God's sovereignty is part of that foundation that allows us to have peace in all situations. So now, just thinking back to the slogan, we try harder. 
the wonderful thing about God's sovereignty is he has a plan and it's a promise that he is working out all aspects of our life according to his plan and his glory. So our hope is not, is not in our sinful selves. Our hope is in God's sovereignty because he is in control. Pray with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to worship you this morning. Lord, it's true that our only boast is you. You're what we have. Uh, you're all we have. We thank you for your word, Lord. We know that your word is truth. We pray that you're sanctifying us by your truth in our lives, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm Adam Sandwick. I also have a privilege of serving here as an elder at Enid MB Church, along with Doug Ratzliff, Larry Fry, and Terrell Unruh. Uh, just by way of update, after talking to Sherry Fletcher a little bit this morning, as you know, we're in the middle of some elder nominations and vetting. We do take our elder process seriously here. We look at our first... Timothy 3 qualifications, we look at Titus 1 qualifications, look at the character of a man. We also take very seriously wardrobe. If you don't own plaid, it's right out. So, yeah, um, thanks for bringing that to my attention. So, guys, thanks for falling in this morning. Uh, but also, we place a high priority here on expositional preaching, expository preaching. You hear us talk about that some from the front or in conversations around here and meetings. In fact, uh, a commitment to expository preaching is what our pastor search team has called a non-negotiable as we've looked for our new pastor. But that's a phrase that some of us maybe have heard for the first time. We don't know what it is. So what is expository preaching? Simply put, expository preaching is preaching that uses the text of Scripture to direct the message. The message is grounded in the text. It uses the text's themes or points as the themes or points of the message. And further, it seeks to fit the given text into the larger theme of all of Scripture. And like Doug said this morning, this morning we're looking at the theme of God's grand redemption, which we believe is woven throughout all of Scripture. And we're looking at that through the lens of God's sovereignty, God's grace, and God's glory. And so I have the privilege of talking a little bit about God's grace this morning. Now, I'm sure I'm not alone, but when I hear God's grace, I tend to only think about God's saving grace in our life. And so I'm here to encourage us, don't just make that mistake of thinking that His grace is only His saving work in our lives. We see that in passages like Romans 3 or Ephesians 2, where it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's true. But we want to look at it through maybe a more full picture this morning. Here's a definition of grace that I'm uh, going to use. I saw it from a theologian named Wayne Ward. I think it helps us understand grace more fully. Grace is the sheer self-giving love of God towards suffering and sinful humanity. It has no cause outside the love of God himself. It is not dependent on any merit or worth in the recipient. So in light of this definition, let's just use this this morning. That God's grace is the means through which God deals with us throughout all stages of our lives. So His grace is the means through which God deals with us throughout all stages of our lives. If you want, you can turn to Exodus 34. Uh, this is just when God, if, so God and Moses are going back and forth. Uh, at Mount Sinai, 
Moses has asked to see God's glory, and God says, all right, I'll give you what you ask for. So this is verse 34, chapter 34, really 1 through 6, 7, but I'm just going to read verse 6. So God comes down. He hides Moses in a cleft of a rock because nobody can see God and live, is what we hear. We read earlier in Scripture. So he hides Moses in a cleft of his rock, of a rock, passes by him, removes his hand, so Moses sees the backside of him. As he's doing so, God says his name. We learn about God here. Your name is your identity, right? That's how you identify yourself to others. That's how people know you. So we learn about God through how he self-identifies here to Moses. He says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping going, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God here self-identifies himself as gracious. He also identifies as just in the same breath. So we understand that first, grace isn't excusing sin. God never excuses our sin, and he doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. That would make him gracious. That would make him unjust. A just God, there's sin, there's penalty for sin. God's grace will come and how that penalty for sin is paid. So, we've probably all heard this acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And I think that that's a good starting point for us for understanding grace. But I think it really lacks uh, the punch of what the fullness of grace means. So, uh, let's look at five means of God's grace to us. In your outline there, uh, we've got God's common grace. We're going to hit on God's restraining grace, God's saving grace, God's sustaining grace, and God's sanctifying grace. Um, Terrell made a crack at me about my lack of alliteration, and so he didn't think I had what it take to be a preacher. So uh, He did suggest some S words there, God's standard grace and God's suppressing grace, but I didn't go so far as to do that. So, uh, God's common grace, uh, these are evidences of his love that are common to all. These are experienced by all of us, regardless of our righteousness. So, this is for believers and unbelievers alike. Remember the earlier definition we used? Grace is God's self-giving love towards humanity, not just his chosen people. So, some examples we see in Scripture. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So here we see the riches of God's creation is seen as his common grace to all men. We see this also in Romans 1. Uh, another example, Jesus says in Luke six thirty five similarly, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So that's God's character is another example of his common grace. He's kind to the evil and the ungrateful. Paul kind of echoes this in Romans 2, 4. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Presume taking advantage of. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So there we see the purpose of God's common grace is to lead you to him, draw you to himself. Look in the Old Testament, David says the same thing in Psalm 145, 9. 
the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Here we see his mercy, and then over all that he has made, that's everything. There's nothing that is that hasn't been made by God. We see that throughout Scripture. So his common grace. And that's probably easiest, maybe the easiest for all of us to see and understand. Just We can look at the heavens. We can look at all of his creation and understand that that's just such a gift that he's given to all of us, regardless of our righteousness. Next, we're going to go to God's restraining grace. Uh, and I'm going to admit up front that this was something a little bit new to me as I was studying through God's grace. But as I was reading and understanding, it just spoke to me so much. Uh, just and It was kind of a reason that I had asked if they would sing that song right there, All I Have is Christ. Just knowing that even as a believer, I still have a heart that's drawn to sin. That apart from God, uh, I, w- I would run after that. And so we're going to talk about his restraining grace here. This is God in his grace, his self-giving love, as we said earlier, keeps men from sinning as much as they would without his grace. This applies to the believer as well as the unbeliever. And an example in scripture that we'll use is in Genesis 20. Abraham and Sarah, if you remember, they've come down from uh, where they were in Mesopotamia, Chaldea, and they're making their way to the promised land that God has chosen and said he would give them, and then they're making their way throughout the promised land. They haven't settled yet. And they come to a, a different region, and they tell the king there, it's King Abimelech, that Sarah is Abraham's sister. So he did this in Genesis 12 in Egypt. He said the same thing to Pharaoh, and it must have gone so well for him that he decided to reuse the same strategy. Anyways, What's important here is God's word to Abimelech in verse 6. So this is Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. God appears to Abimelech and kind of chastises him for taking another man's wife. Abimelech tries to plead his innocence. God says, this will teach us about his restraining grace. God says, yes, I know, Abimelech, that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. But it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. We see a similar story of God's restraining grace in David's life in 1 Samuel 25 where God says, or even David is acknowledging that if it weren't for God, I would have done this. So this is important. I think I want you to uh, understand, and I'm still trying to understand, like I said, if you're thinking his restraining grace doesn't apply to you because you're a believer or all of us as believers because we don't have the same desire to sin, I want to remind us Like when we were saved by grace through faith, we weren't saved from sin. We were saved from the penalty to sin, the penalty for sin, which was death apart from Christ. So kind of as an aside or a reference, I would point you to Romans chapter 7 where Paul's struggle between uh, the good he wants to do and the, the good that he does not want, the evil he does not want to do. And it's a struggle for him as a believer. We still go through those same things. Uh, And when I was kind of looking through this, I came across this sermon or uh, writings by Jonathan Edwards. It was called Restraining Grace, A Great Privilege. And there were some good passages there. I'd love to share them. It's, even though he was in the U.S., just his, the older English style of writing can get confusing to speak. I would trip over my words, I'm sure, and it's hard to hear. But I would encourage you to go look where he talks about this and, and kind of how it plays out in the life of the believer. But I'll read a a little bit here and kind of paraphrase it. And he says, The fact that the godly, or the believers, 
that we don't fall into the most horrid sins that can be, that can be imagined isn't owing to anything within us or that we just don't do them. It's owing solely to the covenant mercy of God, whereby he has promised never to leave nor forsake his people, and that he will not allow them to be tempted above what they're able. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. But with the temptation will make a way for them to escape. So hear this. With God's restraining grace, there's nothing in us that keeps us from sinning or even sinning more or even sinning more. It's God's restraining grace or his covenant mercy only that prevents us from going in a way that the sinful desires within us would like to go. But praise, praise God that he has given us that, that we're not given over to that. Through him, greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. We can claim victory over those. But we're still drawn that way. Uh, there's this, there's a, a quote that... Uh, John Calvin has said that he's written, and it says, he's a believer talking about believers, and he says that all of our hearts are idle factories. So idle, I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E. Idle factories, creating gods in our own fashion. Like, just with whether we're unsatisfied or we have a longing uh, for a God that's more like us, because the God we do worship, the God of the Scriptures, is so unlike us, and it's hard for us to fathom him. So he, he says that our hearts are idle factories. We want to go after something that we can understand or that's more uh, comprehensible to us. Um, I thought that that kind of fits in a little bit to the internal struggle of the believer. I'll end this uh, section on restraining grace. This is a quote that I've heard before, and it's attributed to John Bradford. He's another reformer. Uh, he was an English reformer in the 1500s, and it was said that he saw some criminals being led to execution and at least once, but then it says he was known to say, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. And so it's the idea that God's grace is the only thing that's restraining us from marching towards certain death apart from God. Uh, so his restraining grace, praise God. Uh, God's saving grace. I think this is, like I said at the beginning, is what we're all familiar with, what we may think of first when we hear of God's grace uh, this is God giving us what we definitely don't deserve. It's completely unmerited. Remember the definition from the very beginning. It's his grace, his self-love. It has no cause outside of himself. It's not dependent on the merit of the recipient. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He gave us the legal standing of Jesus before him, in exchange for Jesus taking our legal penalty. Completely inequitable exchange, right? Unfair. Nobody trades treasure for trash. Remember how Paul says, everything that I've done in my life apart from God, I consider it as rubbish. Like nobody trades treasure for trash. But again, I'll go back to that definition of grace. It's all for God. It's, it's, there's no cause outside the love of God himself. So he's not looking at the trash. He's, he's doing it for his own purpose. It's not dependent on any merit or worth in the recipient. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Paul spends the first part of his letter talking about so much uh, what we deserve as God's enemies. Remember in Philippians 3, we just talked about how the term enemies of the cross. So Paul talks in Romans, the first three chapters, how what we deserve. Then he pivots here in Romans 3 in the middle of the chapter 
to tell about the undeserved gift of God, uh, eternal life and righteousness through the death of Jesus Christ. So God's saving grace, praise God for that. God's sustaining grace. This is in his sovereignty, as Doug talked about, his sovereignty is that he knows everything. He's planned everything from the beginning of time. He holds it all in his hand. God holds all things together and works them all for his purpose, just like Romans 8.28 that uh, Doug talked about. Uh, I thought this was a good quote I saw from John Piper about uh, sustaining grace. He says, sustaining grace is omnipotent grace. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Sustaining grace is omnipotent grace. It is grace that overcomes all obstacles and preserves the faith and holiness that, bring, <coughs> that brings us home to heaven. This is our only sure confidence for the future. Uh, and by way of illustration, you remember Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, and he says in verses 8 through 10, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, what does he say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We just need to understand that Paul, when he writes that, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And we ourselves, we're not strong in ourselves, but it's God's sustaining grace that carries us. And so I'm certain that many of us here have experienced God's sustaining grace, maybe in the wake of the passing of a loved one or of an unwelcome diagnosis and our prayer and our hope is that the outside world that doesn't know Jesus can look at us and observe our life and say, I don't get how you have the strength to carry on. or I don't understand why you're, you seem joyful in the midst of this. I heard, I was talking to Roger Gosen back there and I heard him talk about the, the memorial service for his mother was more of a celebration. Like, just such a witness and a testimony for those of us who know the Lord and have, have members who passed that knew the Lord. Like, there is grieving and sorrow because you're missing somebody. But just the idea that we can have a, a celebration or rejoice when we do lose a loved one, that's God's sustaining grace in us. And then finally, God's sanctifying grace. This is God's grace throughout the life of the believer. And uh, a main passage here that I'd like to look at is Romans 6, 12 through 14. Paul says, uh, before I read it, let me just say, sanctifying just means setting apart as holy or making more holy. So talking about this, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So we see, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to grace or slaves to righteousness. That doesn't mean that we're not tempted to sin as we dealt with earlier in restraining grace. But also the Holy Spirit is God's gift of grace to us. I think the Holy Spirit is God's means through the word and the Holy Spirit is God's primary means of sanctifying us, making us more and more like Christ as we live. Uh, that's his sanctifying grace. The Holy Spirit is in fact called the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29. And as far as sanctifying grace, this one's a little bit tougher to swallow, but as we see it all throughout Scripture from the early Israelites in Numbers and Judges, we see it in David's life, we see it in Solomon's life, we see it in the exiled Israelites, even to the New Testament believers that are addressed in the book of Hebrews, all the way up to us 
God's chastening in our life, his discipline, is also his means of grace in our lives, sanctifying us, making us more like him. I'll read from Hebrews 12. It speaks directly to this. This is some uh, snippets from verses 3 to 11 in Hebrews 12. God is treating you as sons. If you are left without discipline, you are illegitimate children. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, we've hit on God's common grace, restraining grace, saving grace, sustaining grace, sanctifying grace. My final thought and the main driver that I'd like you to hear, go back to that definition, it's his self-giving love towards all of humanity. It has no cause outside the love of God himself. And it's not dependent on any merit or worth in the recipient. If you've been around church for a long, any amount of time, you've probably heard this. But I want to say it because I really want you to know how much you believe this. Or ask yourself, how much do I believe this? Or do I really believe it like deep down in the depths of my soul? There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Nothing. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Nothing. I'll repeat it. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. The reason I know this is true is because it's not about you and it's not about me. God doesn't look down and say, does he deserve it? What does he deserve? It's not about any of us. It never has been. Read through all of Scripture, right? Read from the Garden of Eden all the way through the book of Revelation. It's never about us. It's always been about God. It's always been about his name. And it's always been about his glory. And I think that Terrell, I'll leave that to him. But thank you. All right. Well, I'm glad you don't have to have a good alliteration to have a good message. You all notice I didn't even attempt an alliteration on my outline, so. So we've talked about God's sovereignty this morning, that God is ruler over all things. He is in complete control and working all things out according to his purpose. And we looked at God's grace And I don't know if you've noticed this, but if it weren't for God's grace, His sovereignty would be of no comfort to us, would it? We'd have no reason to take heart in His control over all things, but He is gracious to us. And so finally, today we look at God and His goal in everything, that He has the right goal, and that is His own glory. I'm going to consider a couple passages just in relation to His sovereignty and his grace uh, that look at his glory as alongside of those so in exodus 14 and we'll be looking at quite a few passages this morning and uh, i may have you look up a few but um, i'll be reading some of these just for you all to listen to so exodus 14 god is telling moses that he will exercise his sovereignty or command over pharaoh's heart to obtain glory and he says and i will harden pharaoh's heart And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. We also see God's grace, the glory of God's grace in Ephesians 1, 4, and 6. 
says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. For what purpose? To the praise of the glory of his grace. So what is glory? I think it's important for us to define glory. Uh, for me, it's kind of an abstract term. Uh, it has been. Um, and I was very grateful to be able to study that this week. The word in the Old Testament means weightiness. Uh, and I think this gives us a, a, an idea of what glory would mean. But I would further define it as this. It is the perception of God's attributes, particularly his holiness. And why do I choose the word holiness? It's because holiness is God's overarching attribute. Uh, it's the, the one thing that uh, encompasses all of his other character qualities, whether it be his omniscience, whether it be his omnipotence, his uh, wisdom, his love, God is holy. Holiness is God's otherness. I think of Jeremiah 10.6, it says this. God says, there is no one, it's speaking to God, it says, there is no one like you. God is perfect. He is complete. He is distinct from all creation. He is separate from us. He is not like us. There is no one like him. When God says to his people in Israel, come out from among them and be separate, he's telling them to be holy. I think this illustrates to us something of what God is and teaching them of his holiness. So I want to look at a passage here that I think brings these two ideas together, God's glory and God's holiness, and to help us to understand what glory is. Look up Leviticus 10.3. And I use the NASB, NASB normally, but uh, this morning, uh, out of this, this particular passage, I'll be reading out of the ESV, which is in uh, the chairs in front of you. Uh, as you're looking it up, the word glory is also closely related to honor. Uh, so some of your translations may use the word honor here instead of glory. They are, in fact, very closely uh, used interchangeably in, the tra in, in translation. The difference mainly is that glory is the perception of who God is, and honor is our response to that perception. So Leviticus 10, 1-3 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. If you're using a different translation, it may word this differently, but the idea here is that God is using... Uh, two parallel statements, uh, which is a, it's a common literary device in Hebrew, comparing one statement to another to make a point. He's rephrasing his first statement, linking his holiness to his glory. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. 
or be made holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So God is glorified when we understand or we perceive his holiness because he's made bigger in our eyes. God's goal in everything is his glory. As Adam said, that he is, and he is worthy to seek that glory. In fact, he is jealous for it. Listen to Isaiah 42.8 says, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Also, Exodus 34.14 says, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Maybe you're like me, and in the past I've questioned this and thought, isn't that, isn't that selfish for God to be jealous? Um, and it is, yes, it is, but it is also right and it is good. And so we ask the question then, why is it right for God to be jealous and wrong for us to be? Paul answers this in Romans chapter 11, verses 32 to 36. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God's jealousy is like the jealousy of a husband or a wife for their spouse. There is a rightful ownership or possession within marriage. Just as God has a rightful ownership and a possession over all things, and so he's right to seek his own glory. Everything God does and says is to reveal his holiness. He does it to reveal it to us so that he will be glorified. So even within creation, God reveals his glory. And I think we're very familiar with this passage. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is another parallel statement. The glory of God and the, his handiwork. Romans 1.2 I'm going to read this from the Berean Study Bible because it uses a, uh, a word here I want to come back to. For since the creation of the world, God's indiv invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from His workmanship. Your passage may say uh, what has been made. Uh, his workmanship is what the Berean Bible st Study Bible says. So that men are without excuse, for although they did not, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. And I think this is something for us. It's easy for us to understand, as believers, especially. We look around and we see creation. We see it. It is complex. It's vast, but yet orderly. We see magnificent, magnificent sunsets, or consider the complexity of a single human cell. And we're amazed, aren't we? And yet we are told also that we as believers are also 
God's workmanship. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. That's what I'm going to read here. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. It's the same word as what Romans used. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God is glorified by what he has made, and he is also glorified in our lives if we are truly converted. But he is more clearly glorified by what he has spoken, and specifically I'm talking about the Bible, God's Word, the Scripture. Scripture is our final authority as believers. It is God's complete word to us. It is that word that informs us us of his holy, sovereign plan before creation to send Christ to die for us who are common, sinful, not like him, to make a way possible to be reconciled to him. And all of this is to the praise of his glory like Ephesians says, chapter 1. God's ultimate glory is being revealed in the pages of Scripture. As we see God's sovereignty in bringing about His plan of redemption through His grace, I hope that we realize that this message is only contained in the Word of God. I think we all know that, we believe that. But this is also the message of the Word of God. It's the message that runs through the whole book. And this is why we go through whole books of the Bible in in the pulpit here. So we're going by verse by verse that we understand the meaning of each each verse. But also, as we work through the whole book, then we understand the whole message that is being presented. We may see God's glory in creation, but we can only know how to honor Him through seeing Him in the Scripture. If we neglect this word, if we come on Sunday and we listen to the sermon and it goes in one ear and out the other, if we don't open up our Bibles during the week, it's the same as closing our eyes to the glory of God. And I hope as I look out, I, I see brothers and sisters here, and I hope that, that we can take a lesson from the parable of the sower. And I so desire us to be growing in the Word and listening. Mark 9 speaks about the, the sower that went out to sow, and he cast seed out. And the seed is the Word of God, and the field is the... And the The soil is the the person who is being um, taking in that seed. And I think most of us are familiar with that parable. But as as we consider that parable, 
I think it directly ties into our hearing of the word, our taking in of it. So if we take the lesson from that, we, we must realize that we cannot allow the word to be plucked out of our hearts, just as the birds did the seed in the parable. Nor can we allow the seed to be choked out through the cares of this life. And we must allow that seed to take root in our hearts. The sermon is prepared each week, and the seed is scattered, but that's only half the work, isn't it? We must be faithful listeners, thinking and meditating on the sermon and on the passage that is watered and takes root in our own hearts. And we must also be reading and studying the word daily on our own so as to gaze on the glory of God. So one final thought as I wrap this up. In the pages of Scripture, we see God's ultimate revelation of himself in the person of Christ. Hebrews 1, 2-3 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he, that is Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And yet, as we've been studying through Philippians, what do we learn? Whose glory did Christ seek? Did he come to seek his own? And we know that Christ is worthy to seek his own, is he not? But he didn't. The scriptures tell us that he sought the glory of God the Father, not his own, even though he had that right to do so. And so I ask the question to all of us here what glory are we seeking? Are we searching the word daily? Are we striving to see God's holiness in its pages? Are you allowing that word to make you holy so that you honor him? 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we, as we behold the glory of the Lord, that we're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And I also thought of the passage in Romans 2, 23-24. It says, You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The stakes are high. We are created to glorify God. Yet our sin causes unbelievers to miss and not perceive His holiness. I think we all know the verse in Corinthians that Paul encourages them. He says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. EMB, do you behold the God of the Bible? He is separate. He is unique. He is perfect. He is not like us. He is unknowable to man because of his greatness. And yet... Christ has given us the way to know him. Will you not surrender your will to his? How great is our God, is he not? Let's pray.
Father, as we come before You this morning, desiring to worship You, I pray that we may come with hearts desiring to know You, to see You. Father, that we might understand how great You are, how marvelous, how holy. That You sit on Your throne and You are ruling even now over all things. And yet, Father, You are gracious to us. That You have sent to us Christ who has died for us, who has humbled Himself, who took on the form of a servant, who set aside His own glory. Father, that we might have the opportunity to know You in Him. Father, may we behold His glory. May we behold Your glory. And may our lives honor you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.